Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat Conversations with Filmmakers, where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV, and we will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I'll provide you with the guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's Move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. My guest today, I'm so glad to have him back, is director-screenwriter Adam Rifkin, and he'll be joining us in just a moment. I'm going to tell you more about him in a second. But first, I want to tell you all the chat room is open. If you're listening live, you can join us in the chat room. Please do. And also, since we're recording live, if you're listening live, please go ahead and share it near and far with your friends and industry contacts and connections and colleagues. Uh, use your favorite social media means, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, you name it. Just sh- call somebody or look across that crowded coffee shop and say, hey, I'm listening to this on the computer. Come join me. And, uh, and share the word that Adam Rifkin's on the show, and we're going live right now. Now, if you're listening archived, obviously the chat room's not open, but you can still share the show near and far. And I hope you do, because whenever you share the show live or archived, you help my guest and I reach more people by way of the Internet. It increases our web presence and lets other people who may not have discovered the show benefit by the wonderful information and discussions that we have. The official web address is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S. That's my name, Rex Sykes. I'm your host, Rex Sykes Movie Beat, and all of these interviews can be heard live and archived right there at the interviews blog. There is over 400 hours of professional filmmakers sharing their expertise, their know-how, their tips, advice, their secrets, so that you can advance your career and so that you can make your projects quicker, less costly or more efficiently, uh, cheaper, you know, so that you get them done from idea to market and get them out. And that's the goal. And since all of this is brought to you at absolutely no charge to you, it's absolutely free, all we ask in return is two things. Share the show with other people, whether it's live or archived. Please spread the word. Rex Sykes Movie Beat and my guests. And secondly, leave comments at the player, the Blog Talk Radio player. Leave a comment there. Post on Facebook, tweet live during the show or afterwards, uh, but spread it you know, virally through uh, social media means. And also, if you get the podcast, which are free from iTunes, Rex Sykes Movie Beat Podcast, rate and review them because it helps us out, helps my guests, it increases our web presence and our profile, and, uh, and we're glad that you do. All right, so my guest is Mr. Adam Rifkin. He's returning. If you haven't heard his previous shows, it's okay. You don't have to listen to them in order. But he's been on the show uh, twice before uh, by himself. He's been on with Brad Wyman, producer. And, uh, and so he's been here uh, previously, and he's back today. His, elect- his eclectic career ranges from broad family comedies to cult classics to dark and gritty urban dramas. As a writer, he made his mark with hit films like Moose Hunt, starring Nathan Lane, and Small Soldiers, starring Tommy Lee Jones. 
Uh, he did Sony Zoom starring Tomb Allen, Disney's underdog. And uh, he reached cult status with The Dark Backward, which he wrote and directed, which was named one of the top ten films of the year by the New York, New York Post. Uh, he uh, was a director responsible for Detroit Rock City, um, Night at the Golden Eagle, a film which he not only wrote and directed, but he also produced, and, uh, and many others. He's also done Look the Movie and Look the Series, for Showtime, and reality show The Series, which then later became reality show The Movie. And he's currently got more projects uh, coming up, and he's going to talk to us about all of that right now as I bring him on. Adam, welcome. It's good to have you here today. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great, thanks. Glad that you're back. So, uh, can you catch us up a little bit? It's been a while since you've been on the show, and I know you've been busy and, and uh you had a, a wonderful uh, premiere of reality show, the movie in Los Angeles, and uh, I got to attend that. That was great. Thank you very much. So, um, good and new with uh, Adam Rifkin. Well, uh, reality show is going to be seen this year theatrically. We're negotiating a distribution deal. The movie, the show was made for Showtime. We then um, we then took the show and. Uh, and uh, turned it into a movie, and the movie premiered originally at South by Southwest, and then you were at the L.A. premiere. Okay, and yeah. uh, we, we've been negotiating a... Uh, because, but because the film is an independent film, you know, you have to uh, hook up with a distributor to get it out there and get it seen, and we're negotiating with a distributor right now, and the film is going to be out this year. So I'm very excited that, about that. That's excellent. Um, Can you tell the, the, audience, the listeners just a little bit about... Um, what the show premise is and, and, the, and the translation from, from series to feature? Sure. Uh, because the series look was successful on Showtime, Showtime said, would you want to do another self-contained um, miniseries for us? And I said, of course. And so I had this idea for a movie, but I, I thought it could also work as a series, so I pitched it to them, and they bought it. And that is uh, what reality show turned into. Reality show is a satirical drama about the world of reality television. And it follows an unscrupulous reality show producer, although that may be considered redundant, uh, who... Um, <laughs> played by Adam who, Rifkin. Played by myself, yeah. <laughs> um, who, who has been a uh, success in the reality show world, but is tired of how phony all reality shows are, because we all know they're staged, everything is fake in reality shows. And what he wants to do is he wants to bring reality back to reality television. And he feels the only way to truly make a reality show reflect reality is to pick subjects and not let them know they're on television. So he picks a family at random, and he puts them under all-encompassing surveillance. He hides cameras in their home. He follows them around with cameras everywhere they go with surveillance teams. He has cameras in their work. And... Uh, he feels that the real-life drama that unfolds will be far more fascinating than anything a team of Hollywood writers and producers could cook up. However, he finds out very quickly that real life is boring. And he and the network uh, conspire to conflict a little in this family's life. Um, so they start to, behind the scenes, manipulate little situations that might 
um, create conflict because conflict, of course, is the cornerstone of drama. And if the family reacts in a dramatic way, it's a success for the show. So little by little, these little um, influences start working. So the producer starts pushing it more and more. And, and as the show is getting more and more exciting and as the drama is heightening, the family starts to unravel. Um, and it starts to get very, very dark. But the rationalization this, this producer has is that once these episodes start airing and once this family becomes rich and famous, all will be forgiven. And it just gets darker from there. It is a truly uh, a fun, uh, disturbing series and movie. And, Thank you very and- much. <laughs> I always I always tell everybody I know that you're very sick and twisted, but you're really a good guy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you do. Um, you've got, well, a, you know, you've got a, a brilliant, devious mind. Thank you. I, I take that as, a, as high praise. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> so we made it as a series for Showtime, and it aired on Showtime, and it did well on Showtime. But I said to my producers and my editor, you know, back to the original idea, this was conceived to be a movie, why don't we take all the footage from all 11 episodes and boil it down into a really concise film? I took a little inspiration from Ingmar Bergman, who did the same thing with his movie Fanny, Fanny and Alexander, which had been a Swedish miniseries. And some other filmmakers had done that as well. Mulholland Drive had been a pilot that didn't get picked up. Uh, Lars von Trier has done that with television series. There's a movie called The Trip with Steve Coogan that was a series in England. So um, I... The editor and I took the footage and boiled it down to a 90-minute movie. And uh, I'm very proud of the series, but i got to tell you, I'm actually even more excited about the movie. So I'm very happy people are going to get a chance to see it this year. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's truly an amazing thing because uh, I, was, I was fortunate enough, one, to watch the series as it unfolded, and then, two, to, to come and see it in Los Angeles. And... You know, it's amazing. I I wouldn't have thought so, because I'm I'm one of these people who who I I think old school. I, and, and maybe you can share your thoughts on this. In the old days, when when seasons were 26 episodes, and sometimes series lasted you know a decade, or Gunsmoke lasted two decades, um, you know, you developed this relationship with characters over a very long period of time. You met at the water cooler or at the office or, or coffee or something. You talked about the show you'd all watched last night on network. But but you have a relationship with people, you know, the fictitious people, um, that's ongoing. And, you know, and then after the show ends, you sometimes have, you know, just like a breakup or a death or something. Uh, they are no more, you know, except in reruns. So, you know, you watch, the, you watch this arc unfold on Showtime. You develop this... This thing over a period, it was, I, I don't remember the number, was it 10, 13, 10? It was, uh, it was uh, 10 episodes, yeah. 10 episodes. So over, ten, over a 10-episode ten, ten arc, you develop a relationship with these characters, and then, you know, and then, and then I went and saw the movie, and it does. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. The movie is this kind of tight, compressed thing that I wouldn't have thought would, would work as well as it does. It's, it's really, it's phenomenal how, how good the movie is, and, and I love the show. But, Thank you. Well, we had to make some really tough decisions in the editing room because we had to cut out so much stuff that we liked. It took us about it took us about two hours to cut down the five hours worth of finished material down to about two hours, and then it took us about 
two weeks to cut it down from two hours to 90 minutes because uh, that's where we really got into losing all the little details that we, we liked. I mean, it was easy to make big plot, sure. you know, uh, subplot cuts, you know, but when it came to all the little stuff, and it's interesting, and it, 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 it was something I didn't expect, but uh, when changing the context from a series to a show, just the knowledge that the context was different changed the way certain things played. There was a lot more humor in the television series, and we thought we'd want to hold on to a bunch of that stuff, but just the context shifting to feature film, it just felt like a TV show in a movie as opposed to a scene from a movie. And that was a very interesting education for me and my editor, Rita, because we, we didn't expect that. Even like certain lines, the way they would be read in the TV series seemed fine. We didn't think that there'd be any need to change them. But suddenly changing the context to a movie, that line didn't play. Or a scene that played perfectly at the beginning of the series, for some reason, now that it's a movie, it needed to play more into the latter part of the movie. I, I don't understand why it works that way, but I guess that's why um, when an artist takes a urinal out of a public bathroom and puts it on the wall of a gallery, suddenly the change in context takes it from being a urinal to a work of modern art. That's fascinating. It truly is fascinating. There's a, there was a book called Ways of Seeing that came out years ago, and I think they, did a, they also did a PBS series, either based on the book or the book based on the series, that had to do with, with this concept of, you know, by where we frame and how we frame and what we see and what was included in the not. Uh, you know, the context determines, you know, one, our response to it. And anyway, um, it must have been an absolutely fascinating education to go through. Very much so, yeah. It was, it was very interesting. And, and the things that we tried to hang on to, at, you know, at the last, like when we were down to, you know, an hour and uh, 45 minutes, you know, that last 15 minutes that we didn't want to cut out, so if we didn't want to cut out, we'd show it to people who, who hadn't seen the series just to get an idea of how the movie was playing. And the stuff that felt like a TV show just stood out like a sore thumb. That's what their comments were afterwards, you know. Uh, the, the, they liked the story, they liked the characters, but this scene, this scene, and this scene felt like something out of a TV show. It was very weird. Well, that's, uh, that's really interesting. When you first approached editing it, did you have your editor go like first pass on her own, or were you involved from the get-go on, on excising stuff in the large sweeps down, you know, I mean... I guess I'm asking how involved are you through that entire process or or do you let your editor surprise you in some ways? Um, I'm always very involved, uh, especially when it came to um, the transition from the series to the movie. We had very little time to to do our switchover from series to um, movie because we were submitting to South by Southwest and we had a deadline. Oh, yeah. that we, ultimately, we ultimately missed the deadline, but luckily they accepted it anyway. They not only accepted it, but they premiered it opening night of the festival, which was very exciting. That's but, very cool. um, so, so we, because we both knew the material so well together, it helped a lot that together we decided, all right, we're going to cut all this out, we're going to cut all this out, we're going to shift this order, we're going to try this and see where it falls. And we didn't even know if it was going to work as a movie. 
But once we had it down to two hours, we felt not only does this work as a movie, but this works as a movie that we were really excited about. So then we just dug in and worked every day. I just think it's so cool. And, and, and getting to see both uh, was really a, a treat. And I, and I think, and when the movie comes out, if, if people can, do you have with the, what, what's happened with the reality show, is that something that people can still, is, is there a DVD version of it or any, the series? Is there any way people can, can, can still see reality show? Um, not yet, but they will soon. So uh, the, the, the series longevity is controlled by Sony, and they are uh, going to you know, make their deals um, the way they make their deals. So I'm not sure what they've got in the hopper in terms of where the show will ultimately land, if it'll be uh, on Netflix or Amazon or iTunes or DVD or all of the above. I'm not sure yet. Well, my my point with that is that if if I, I would recommend to any lister, any filmmaker, to be able to go ahead and and take to view it as a series, and then and then as the movie comes out, you know, also see the movie or get the DVD of the movie when the, when it, that's available, to 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 examine that process that you went through. Now you did the flip with Look, right? But what was different about Look is with reality show we took the footage from the series and we literally recut it into a 90-minute movie. With Look, I made the movie look as an independent film. It played theatrically, and then we sold the, the rights uh, to Showtime to show it on Showtime. And then we discussed with Showtime the idea of creating a miniseries inspired by the movie. So we then shot an entirely new uh, entity, which was look the series. I wrote the scripts, and we shot them with a different cast. Most of it, mostly a different cast. There were a couple characters that came back, but um, so that was more the traditional route. Like you know, Robert Altman makes the movie Mash, and then suddenly the you know a network show based on Mash comes out. You know, so it was that kind of situation. Now there are two. Actually, there are four, but there there are two. You know, look and reality show both kind of a theme of being captured on camera, either and in both cases surreptitiously, I guess. Um, you know, one is look that, you know, your premise that you're captured on camera 300 times or more during a day through ATMs and security cams and traffic cams and, and this, and, and, and you make a movie and a, a miniseries based on that. And then you set up, you know, a family to be um, filmed, uh, without their knowledge and captured on camera throughout every moment of their life. Um, technology uh, appeals to you, I guess, and so does and so does Billy. Do you, do you have other um, devious works uh, in the works regarding a similar kind of theme? Uh, well, I, you know, I've got all kinds of different projects. Um, I like all different forms of storytelling. With look and with reality show, though, I, they, they are sort of cut from the same bolts of cloth and that they're about voyeurism. And I do find voyeurism to be, I mean, we're all voyeurs. I mean, that's, sure. I mean, that's why we like watching movies and TV shows. We like looking in on people's lives. And, you know, also that's why, you know, movies like Rear Window are fascinating, you know, looking into people's windows and seeing what they're doing when they don't know they're being watched. And, and with contemporary technology as it stands, I mean, we've become a nation, a world, I should say, obsessed with voyeurism. You know, uh, the Internet is, is 
all about looking in on people and looking on people's, in on people's business, you know. So I just wanted to explore that with Look, the movie, and then that kind of, with the movie, gave me more ideas to explore in the television show. And then based on those two experiences, the idea kind of emerged to do this series about a family being put under surveillance. All of it is related, and all of it sort of stemmed from the same seed, which was the movie Look. Um, and I would do more stuff in that regard because I still find the world fascinating uh, of voyeurism and, you know, people being watched when they don't realize they're being watched. It's, it, there's something about it that's creepy to me. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I like doing all kinds of stuff. So that's just one of the kinds of things I like to do. That's very, very cool. So, so let's uh, turn our attention briefly to the, what you have coming up right now with uh, Penn Jillette. And um, and can you tell us about this new movie uh, venture with with him? And Penn is obviously the the tall part of Penn and Teller, or the yes. um, boisterously vocal part of Penn and Teller. Uh, right, the more talkative of the Penn and Teller <laughs> team. Indeed. Um, so this also relates to look. Interestingly enough, I get a call out of the blue um, that. Uh, Penn Gillette is tweeting about my movie Look, right? So I thought, oh, that's very flattering because uh, Penn Gillette is known to be a very smart and talented guy. And so I was very flattered to hear that he was tweeting very complimentary things about my movie Look. Um, I then get home and see that he had sent me a Facebook message saying, hi, my name is Penn Gillette. I'm with Penn and Teller. I just saw your movie Look, and I love it, and I'd love to talk to you about something. Here's my phone number. And I wrote him back. It was late Friday night. And I wrote him back, and I, I figured, you know, he was, uh, you know, we would talk sometime next week. And I just said, hey, so great to hear from you. I've been a fan for a long time. Here's my info. Let's connect, you know, whenever you're free. My phone rang two seconds later. It was him, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he, he was very, compliment, very complimentary about look. And then told me about this script that he wrote that he'd been looking for a director for for a long time. Uh, and when he saw Look, he realized it needed to be me. So he asked me, he told me the idea, which I thought sounded very clever, and uh, asked me if I would read the script. I said, I'd be happy to. He sent the script right then and there. He emailed it to me. I read it immediately, and I called him back a couple hours later. And I said, this is such a smart and clever idea for a movie. Um, I'm in. I'll direct it. So it's a very unusual film. It's called Director's Cut. And it's a very meta thriller. Uh, and it basically, in a nutshell, he, he pitches it very well, but I'll give my sort of nutshell version of it. It basically takes the audience's collective uh, already existing knowledge of certain film conventions and uses them against the audience watching the film. So basically what happens is a movie starts, and as the movie starts, you hear the director's voice begin the director's commentary, like the DVD commentary on the, uh -huh. on the film. And this plays throughout the entirety of the film. This is not an option like you get on a DVD menu. This is a narrative device that's being used throughout the film. But what's interesting is um, it's, it's uh, Penn Jillette's voice. You'll, you know, people who know who Penn is, they'll recognize his voice. And he starts the movie plays, and you hear him say, Hi, I'm the director of the film, and uh, you know, I'm glad that you tuned in. I can't wait to tell you how you know, we went about making this film and what it was like. And he starts telling stories about you know, this scene and that scene and what it was like shooting in this location and that location. And little by little, he starts 
talking very, and, and the movie is a thriller uh, where a female cop is on the case of a serial killer. And he talks very glowingly about the leading lady in the movie who he will refer to by her real name. Whatever actress plays this role will be playing herself and, you know, be being referred to as, as herself, you know. So, so he's saying it was so wonderful working with this actress and she's such a talent and she's such a great sport to work with. And, and the more he starts talking about her, the more he starts revealing very personal things about her and he's clearly very, very taken with her and, and it gets even deeper and starts getting, he, he's clearly very obsessed with her and, and hopefully the audience at this point is thinking, wow, this guy really loves his leading lady. And then as that, as that continues on, you start thinking, wow, this director's maybe bordering on a little bit unprofessional with his, his obsession with her personal life. And little by little you start to realize, oh, this isn't the director of this movie. This is, this, this is a stalker who's obsessed with this actress. Uh, because then you start seeing things cut into the movie, like camcorder footage following this actress you know, on her off day as she's shopping or following her home and peering in her windows. And eventually you, you see somebody kidnap this actress and bring her home to his home dungeon. And then you realize, aha, this is not the director of this movie. This is a stalker who's been stalking this actress. He gets, he gets onto her set. He follows her around. He kidnaps her. He brings her home to his home dungeon makeshift movie studio where he's going to reshoot the ending of the movie where he himself is going to play her love interest. And it's just very creepy. Um, <laughs> you are indeed unusual. you are indeed the director for that movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good call. Good so, call, Pen. <laughs> so because we knew it was a very unusual movie and it would be tough to get it financed, we turned to crowdfunding um, to see if we could raise the money that way. Penn's friend Adam Carolla had just raised more than the budget he was looking for on a crowdfunding site. Plus the Veronica Mars movie and the uh, Zach Braff movie and the Spike Lee movie had all been recently successful on crowdfunding. So we took the crowdfunding and we created a campaign called Make Penn Bad because Penn plays this stalker and he had always wanted to be a bad guy in a movie. So the, the, the hook, the angle of our campaign was if you help finance this movie, you get to help Penn live out his fantasy of playing a bad guy. So help, help us make Penn bad. And uh, we, ran a, we ran a, you know, a really serious campaign, and we shot a video you know, for, the, for the campaign, and, and it worked. And we, we raised about a million. We were looking to raise a million bucks. We raised about a million two, and the money is still coming in. And uh, it's very exciting. So we're, we're casting now. And because we're looking for a name to play the lead female, uh, it takes a while. So we've, we've been down the road very, very close many times with some very great leading ladies. Ultimately, we lost a couple. A couple that we were close on didn't work out. But we're going to get a good one. And as soon as we get one, we're ready to start shooting. Oh, that's so cool. That is truly, truly very cool. Uh, I just want to check something here. We are – oh, because one of the things uh, – that's uh, uh, what I want to – I want to I wanna, um, – come back to uh, some of the other things that you're doing because you've got a lot of other stuff but one of the things that we discussed the last time you were on the show was your approach to casting and how you found the right actor for the role and what actors um, need to know in terms of auditioning for you or coming into a room and it's a different process to to you know meet with a director than to meet with a casting director so what what is it that one you look for in in talent 
uh, in spite of the fact that that's a, a hypothetical because there's you know tons of different people out there but but how do you how do you when you envision when you envision the character and you get the person in the room they've come in either because you, you know you've your casting director sends them up to you or or you've requested them or whatever I, I, apart from name talent because that's a very and and I, I want you I'm sorry I'm going on with this for so long but I, I would like you to address both because name talent uh, some of the parameters of of that casting is much different than casting your other other parts and other roles and your and your weeklies and day players and things like that. So, if you'd address both of those, that would be awesome. Yeah, I'll start with just uh, uh, auditioning people, um, and then I'll go down to the name talent um, uh, approach. But when when I'm auditioning people, you know, one thing people need to know when they're auditioning is that. I can't speak for all directors, but for myself. I'm not looking for somebody to come in and give me the finished film version of a performance. You don't need to have the lines perfectly memorized. You don't need to hit every single word exactly right on. Technical perfection really means very little to me when I'm looking for who I feel is right for a role. Um, it's it's a it's a very amorphous thing what makes uh somebody stand out in a crowd you know when when people are coming into audition casting in my opinion and the opinion of many other filmmakers i know is the most important decision that a director can make because just about every other choice a director makes there are ways to fix it either in post or on the fly, there are ways you can you can get around mistakes that you've made, but you can't get around casting the wrong person. Um, you can help make a, a weak performance a little better in editing sometimes. You can certainly take a good performance and ruin it in editing, but you can't change in editing who you've chosen. Now, ultimately, it's down to personal taste. You know, one director is going to cast one person for a role. Another director is going to see something different in a different actor and cast the other actor in the role. So really, at its core, I'm trusting my instincts. My instincts tell me this person stands out from the crowd. This person has some special something that I can't put my finger on. This person, I feel, is going to be a star. This person... You know, it doesn't even that, that person doesn't even necessarily have to be a professional actor. But if there's something about that person that I see in there that I know I can get a performance out of them, or I bet they'd look really interesting on film, or or they exude something that's really exciting, you know, I'll be drawn to them. You know what I mean? Um, I will tell you this: um, when I'm not saying that acting classes and acting school um, can make somebody who has no talent have talent. That'll, that just doesn't exist. But if somebody has raw talent and they've learned how to control it a little more by studying and they have, a, as a result, a little bit more control of what they do, you can tell when people come into audition. You know, a lot of people come into audition... I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. A lot of people move to Los Angeles and think... I'm good-looking, I'm an actor now. And people have told me in the school play that I have talent, right? 
And they think right. that's all that it takes. They think that's all that it takes. But that, if you don't have control over your, your raw talent, you can just kind of tell you know, in the audition. And it definitely helps to be able to control what you do. I'm not saying it always is that way. I mean, George C. Scott has never, never took an acting class and was very proud of that. Jennifer Lawrence, I hear, is very vocal about the fact that she's never taken an acting class. And by the way, th- those are two great actors, and they will probably be the reason that a lot of people who need to study don't and otherwise <laughs> would have been better. You know what I mean? True. But um, it, if you're pursuing a career as a, an actor in Hollywood, it really behooves you to take it very, very seriously. You, you wouldn't just go into science and say, I, I took a high school science class, I'm now a scientist. You know, you, you'd be laughed out of the scientific community. This, but, but for some reason, Hollywood, it doesn't work that way. People think they can just waltz in and say, I'm an actor, and that means they're an actor. I, I really recommend people take it seriously, because when you're auditioning, you can see the difference. Um, that said, I've cast people in big roles who aren't even actors, and sometimes there's, they have a quality that you just would never find anywhere else, and you just work with it. Kids are great actors because they're totally un, they're, they're totally unselfconscious. The ones that aren't ruined by pushy stage parents who make them self-conscious. You know what I mean? Right. right um, sure. w- one of the things that I see that acting class can help with a lot is is not being self-conscious because acting feels stupid. You know to <laughs> to, to, to say things, to pretend you're being a doctor as a grown adult is, feels stupid. It doesn't feel stupid when you're a kid. You do it all day long. You pretend to be, you know, different things. But as a grown-up, you pretend to do things that feel stupid. You have to get over feeling stupid, being self-conscious about it. Anyway, I know I'm going on in different directions about it. But, but please um, do. all these things apply. Well, I know. I, I think that's fabulous, and it, it's important for people to be able to hear, uh, whether they're emerging talent or even seasoned talent, um, you know, your opinion as a director, because they could end up before you in some situation. Or, you know, if they're pursuing their career seriously, they're going to end up in front of other directors at some point, and, and they should understand uh, the nature of the beast and the nature of the business. Uh, I think there are those people, like when you mentioned, say, Jennifer Lawrence or George C. Scott never having taken an acting. They're, yeah, there are going to be those people who can who do that. I do think they do a disservice to a lot of people uh, and your point about science is so apt and so well, well stated. Um, the thing that I think happens with a lot of people is either, either there are those people who are lucky enough and by luck, I mean, they are professional enough and they, they've got the right combination of, of talent and looks and a team and aggressiveness or whatever it is that they get out frequently and they may some people have two, three, four auditions a day. And if you know, if you did that for a year, you become quite a good auditioner and hopefully you're booking work. If you have one or two auditions a month, you know, and at the end of the year you've had ten auditions or twenty four auditions, you you don't have the same opportunity necessarily to become a really great interviewer, a great auditioner. And I think going into a room whether it's a room where you are alone or you're with your producers or you're alone or you're with your writers or it's with a network, that that in and of itself can be unnerving to the actor. They don't understand how to approach that situation in a way that best serves them to showcase who they are and what they're capable of um, to you 
and or your team. If, so what you've said makes a lot of sense, and, and I think that you know a lot of actors want to know they're they're concerned about the job, they're concerned about paying their rent, and there's all these other things that are impinging on their performance or their or their mental process when they're there with you. Correct. Um, it is it is sort of like a job interview, but the job is a role. You know what I mean? So it's it's you know there's a lot of filmmakers too. I'm not one of these types of people who if you're playing a cop. I can't imagine you as a cop unless you come into the audition dressed like a cop. I mean, I can imagine you in a costume. That's never been a problem for me. I know some people like to do that, and some directors like to see that. That's fine. Whatever you know helps you stand out from the crowd helps. But you know, there's something there's something that's very people really appreciate somebody who just comes in professionally, knows how to you know do their reading, knows how to you know be respectful and professional and come in and do a good job and leave. And, and by the way, sometimes it's important for actors to know you don't necessarily know what we're looking for when you come in the door, you know. So you might come in and think you blew it. You might walk out feeling that you did a terrible job, but you don't know that what I was looking for had nothing to do with what you think you blew. There are a lot of people who walked out of auditions of mine that felt they blew it and they got the part, you know. And then there are people who you can tell felt that they nailed it for sure, and it's just not what I was looking for. And although they're very talented, it wasn't right for what I needed, you know. So you you have to also, as an actor pursuing a career in Hollywood, as hard as this is going to be to put into practice, you have to try to compartmentalize and not take these kinds of rejections personally. Even though your person is what's being rejected, it's not you as a person that's being rejected. You don't. You, th- there's a look that maybe the filmmaker's looking for. There's a, a style, a vibe that that is of no fault of your own, just not what you exude. Doesn't mean you're not talented, you know. So. Well, and and uh, it, you know, for those people who do this, they and they do it well. I mean, successfully, they, they're professional interviewers or additioners in their booking work. They 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 already understand it. It's it's more at this particular moment. I think the people who are 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 trying to get into the business who are coming to Hollywood who don't necessarily get that there are lots of other considerations for why someone doesn't book a the particular audition. But having and having said that, if somebody comes into the room and they're not right, what are the chances you might remember them for something else? Uh, if they do a good job. The, chan- the chances are very, very high, and it happens all the time. Um, th- uh, if you're doing a television series, I've had the experience with two of my series uh, uh, where someone's auditioned for a role for the lead in the series, and uh, they were great, but just not right for the lead. I remembered them for a future episode, you know, and they gave them a role in another episode. Uh, as well, I remember people who've auditioned for films of mine and I just just remembered them because they stood out and they were good. And then I would cast them in another movie. So that happens constantly. That's why it's always good to be respectful and professional. You know, you you want to you want to not only do you want to show that you're talented, but you also want to show that you're somebody who people would like working with. You know, because I've had people come into audition who were so rude oh, wow. uh, that that 
and, and people who were very good. And I thought, you know, I would discuss with the casting director, you know, that person is good, but there's no way I would want that person on my set. They're, 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 they're a jerk. Why would I want to work with that person when there are so many talented people to work with? And I don't understand why anybody would go into a job interview <clears throat> and be unpleasant, you know. That's, a, again, a stellar advice for, for all of us listening. And um, well, another question regarding that is, is I hear casting directors a lot go, we can smell desperation. Do not come into the room desperate. We don't want to know that you can't make your rent. Or we want you to come in as a professional top of your game and, and do what you're supposed to be doing. I agree um, with that. I agree with that. Um, I also agree with the idea that a lot of people think, I believe wrongly, that if you're out at parties and clubs hanging out with other successful actors, that that in some way will translate into roles and help your career. And I would... I could only say that the only thing that really will help your career is giving a good audition. You know, um, so that's why I say it's more important to study and be good and come in and give a great read than it is to be seen out hanging with other successful actors and you think that somehow their fame is just going to rub off on you. It usually does not work that way. Very cool. When I don't know if we can clarify any further that 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 you haven't already, but for somebody to come in and be good, you said earlier, you know, if you fluff the line or you don't quite do it, or um, is there anything they can do specifically to to in terms of their preparation for coming into a room that. Uh, I don't even know how to ask the question, I guess, but but that they can do to give themselves an edge. Uh, I, I know training. I mean, all those kinds of things. But when, once they're there, uh, if they flub a line, can they go? Can I do it again? Does that matter to you? Do they just go on? If um, uh, I, I do you want them off I know book. I know there. I do. I do not need them to be off book, as they call it. They, the, uh, in fact, I prefer that they're not, because oftentimes when people are off book, they forget the lines, and then they take time and have to start again, and then they go. Just have your script in your hand. Refer to it. It's it's an audition. It's not a finished performance. Um, and if you flub a line, I don't care that you flubbed a line. Don't feel you have to start from the beginning again. You know. Also remember that. Your one audition in a day full of auditions, in the middle of a week full of auditions, possibly within months full of auditions. So we're seeing lots and lots and lots of people. So I know you would probably love to do it three or four more times because you feel like you really could, you could really capture the nuance a little bit more if you could do it again. But the more you ask, can I do it again, and the more you make a casting director or a director feel uncomfortable telling you, no, we, we got it, don't worry, we know what we're looking for, it, 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 it does make you look a little desperate. You know what I mean? Sure. You, have sure. To just be, you, just have to, you just have to go with the flow. You know? Just have fun with it. Do the read. If you flub a line, keep going. If the director wants you to do it again, the director will generally ask you to do it again. Um, you don't need to make that suggestion to the director. A director by definition, knows what they're looking for and what they want 
different and will direct you to do it again if they want you to. So I would say be mindful of the fact, I know this is hard for a lot of actors because actors oftentimes exist in a bubble where they believe they are the center of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the truth? So don't. So be aware, though, that you are one audition in a in a middle of a lot of auditions, and you don't want to be the one that when you walk out of the room, the director and the casting director say to themselves, "Ugh, you know what I mean? Be cool. Be you know." And and by the way, one of the things that helps you stand out, you have no control over, which is having just that thing. You know, like everybody's watched, everybody's seen American Idol, right? So everybody. Right has seen as, Ameri- as every season of American Idol the same way. As the season unfolds, it gets na- boiled down to a lot of people who can sing pretty well, but then usually there's one or two people who just stand out and you can tell they're, they're just going to be stars or they're better or they just in some way or another have it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That doesn't mean that lots of other people don't have great talent, but you, you're looking for the people who have it. And you know, hopefully everybody, you know, walks around in life feeling confident that they are special and have it. Um, and everybody is special in their own way. But when you're auditioning people for a particular role, you're looking for that one special something that you can't put your finger on, but when you see it, you know it. If you don't have that thing that the director's looking for for that role, it just is what it is, you know. Now, there's caveats to everything. I'll, I'll say this. Sometimes I'm looking for something very specific. I look through many, many people, and I never find it. And then suddenly somebody comes in who is the absolute opposite of what I'm looking for. But they're so unique in some way that I will reconceive the character for that actor. That has happened to me multiple times, and I know it will happen again, and I know stories like that have happened many times with people who have gone on to become very successful so let's say that you're in the waiting room waiting to audition and you are by far the youngest person there. Or let's say by far you are the only brunette and everybody else is blonde. Or by far you are the oldest person there and everybody else is young and you feel like, I'm not right for this part, obviously. I should just leave. Don't leave. Go in, do a great audition. You might be wrong for the part. You may not get that part, but you may be remembered for another part. Or you may be not right for the part, but everybody else who's come in might just not be right either. And suddenly the director goes, you were so good, I'm going to rethink the role just for you. Happens all the time. That's very cool. I mean, it's truly very cool and very encouraging. And it also um, uh, speaks to uh, your flexibility in mind. I mean, in knowing what you want and and, and what else would work different and, and how you would adjust for um, the situation, or or surprised and find something better than than you had originally conceived. Um, when you give an adjustment to an actor, or when you when an actor is reading for you, uh, are, are you looking for range? I mean, some people will say, you know, there's five different. You got to find the five different beats, so you have to play opposite the, you know, the the demeanor of the scene. If it's a downbeat scene, find the humor in it. You know, find something different to. How do you suggest that people? If there were an approach or a technique or a method, how, how how would you suggest that an actor approach the scene? They get the sides in your outer office, maybe, or a day before, or something, or they or they get an NDA and they're there, you know, moments before, and they get the script and they look at it and they need to break it down. They're going to come in and and, and hopefully they're going to exhibit themselves and or their uniqueness and if they have it to you, 
but when it comes to the to the scene and their approach to the scene and whether or not you choose to have them do it again with an adjustment or something what 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 can they best do to to try and come in and present their best foot forward or nail it for you i'll I'll give you two examples of in other areas of how I think that applies to this um, Have you ever heard? someone performs Shakespeare and you have no idea what they're saying. Sometimes <laughs> Shakespeare is uh-huh. very difficult very difficult to decipher. Right. I have found, though, that people who perform Shakespeare who understand what they're saying, if, if the actor understands what they're saying, as opposed to just remembering the lines and repeating them, if the actor understands what he's saying, I find Shakespeare to be very easy to understand. Um, it's in its own Shakespeareanese, clearly. But if the actors really know what they're saying, you know what they're saying too. Now, the same, the same token goes for a singer. If a singer is just singing a song, they're repeating the words, they're following the melody, and they happen to have a lovely voice. But if they don't feel what the song is about, the song is not very memorable. You know, I mean, I've had situations before where I've heard a song, my whole life I've heard a song and enjoyed the song, but then suddenly I hear somebody else sing the song, and suddenly it's like I've heard the song for the first time because that person has, has suddenly understood the song in a way that I'd never even thought of it before, and now the song makes me cry. You know what I mean? So, or, or I get it in some other way, you know? Like um, uh, the song The Gambler. Okay, by uh-huh. the Kenny Rogers sings, right? Kenny Rogers. Classic song. Oh. Kenny, classic song, right? Classic song. But I've heard that song a million times, right? But one time I heard the song performed by the, the writer of the song. And now I'm blanking on his name, and I apologize, but it's easy to Google, right? So the writer of the song, The Gambler, sang the song. There's some live recording of it from some small club he sang it. And when he sung the song, it was a totally different song. It had a totally different, bittersweet, melancholy feeling that was very, very touching. I've never been touched by Kenny Rogers' version of the song. When the, when the writer of the song sang it, I was suddenly totally t- touched. Right? So I would say to any actor auditioning for any role, and I don't care if it's Sharknado 3, right? right. know what the scene is about. Understand what you're saying, you know? If you understand what you're saying, you know what it's about, what you're, you know, who you are and why you're saying what you're saying, it's going to come across and you're going to, it's going to be more of a connect, you're going to have more of a connection with the, the, you know, who you're auditioning for. Um, one of my other guests, uh, 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 a well-known writer, producer, said that he was auditioning uh, some name talent for one of the shows that he was doing. And he said, and the first guy came in and totally sucked. And he goes, but this guy's like, you know, a big, big kind of star, and I can't believe he sucked. And the next guy came in and just like totally sucked. And he, he was like really concerned that maybe the third guy came in and sucked, and, he's, and then it dawned on him. He said, you know, it's not the actors, it's my writing. And they, they kind of rewrote the scene, and then the fourth guy came in, and he said he nailed it. And I, he, he told me the story once, and I asked him on my show recently, I said, so who actually got it? He said, well, you know, the guy that nailed it, he said, I couldn't go back to the other three. I mean, it just business-wise wasn't the kind of thing I would have done. But um, 
he said it, it was interesting because he said the actors are trying to make my words come alive, and I realized that my words at this point just weren't very workable for these actors. Um, do you ever encounter anything like that where, you know, uh, apart from the, you know, improv side of what the rule regulations and everything else about um, casting and, and, and instructions and auditions, um, where an actor comes in and it's just not working and, and you go, I can rewrite a scene differently? Do you have, as a writer, director, do you ever find inspiration? I, I have that happen all the time. Yeah, I have that happen all the time. I generally don't do that in the ed- in the auditioning process, but I'm sure. set all the time. If something feels like it's just not working, I'll rewrite things, or a lot of times I'll even shoot things that I thought were working, and then in the editing room you see it just doesn't work, and cut things out that I thought for sure would play better. And um, yeah, oh yeah, adjusting writing all the time, and and I always encourage the actors, you know, if something feels false because of the way it's written, feel free to put it in words that make it make sense for you, you know. Very cool. Now, we've, we've talked a lot about casting today, and, and I'm going to encourage people in the chat room or people who listen to this archive, if they want to, you know, if they want follow-up questions that, that I can ask of you at another time, uh, again, on the show sometime, that they can email me or they can put some in the chat room now. Um, I want to take a small break. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your, your the other things you're doing, the documentary film, and uh, and and stuff and um, the the primary dates and and things on that and I also want to come back and talk about the crowdfunding process um, somewhat. So uh, is that cool with you? Oh yeah, great. Looking forward to it. All right. So what I'm going to do is take a short break and uh, and uh, everybody hang in there. You're listening to Rex Ike's Movie Beat. The official URL is r e x s i k e s dot com. All of these interviews, discussions with people like Adam and Adam's uh, prior shows with me are available there at that interview blog on RexSykes.com. There's over 400 hours archived uh, information that you're going to want to have. So go back to the beginning of the archives and just listen to the shows uh, in any particular order. I've got a director series, there's a writer series, there's a first AD series. I mean, there's all sorts of great stuff, uh, cinematographers, editors, actors, casting directors, coaches, managers, agents. So please go back, do yourself a favor and and listen. But also please leave comments before you leave the, the chat room today or before you leave listening live or archived. Leave a comment at the Blog Talk Radio Player. Leave it on Facebook, Twitter, your favorite social media means, and share these discussions with your friends near and far. Uh, that really helps us out, and we appreciate it. Um, I'm a, I appreciate that Adam is here, and we've got so many great, fabulous guests. My next guest coming up... Um, I can't even remember. I need to look at my calendar. Um, I'll tell you, it's David Winning. I'm sorry, David Winning is coming up um, next to Thursday, the 15th. David is a television director primarily and, and movies as well. Uh, but he's been with us before. He's going to be coming back, and uh, I'm looking forward to him. Most of the shows are done now Thursdays. I have had to add some during the week. Uh, and we'll continue to do that. Sometimes the day, the day changes because of my schedule. But uh, same time, same place. Typically, uh, look for us on, um, on, on Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends and uh, on Facebook and on Twitter for the upcoming schedule as well as the website. So um, go check that out. All right. Again, I'm with Mr. Adam Rifkin. And, um, Adam, we're back. Do you have um, – any places that you want to send people to? I mean, you're on Facebook, you're on Twitter. It's Adam Rifkin on Twitter, or at Twitter, sorry. Um, yes, uh, any- uh, Twitter, at, at Adam Rifkin. Um, please uh, feel free to uh, contact me there. Also, um, 
I encourage everybody <coughs> excuse me, to check out makepenbad.com. Makepenbad, that's Pendulette, P-E-N-N, makepenbad.com. If people want to get involved with Director's Cut, you can still contribute and be a part of our film. So go to makepenbad.com as well. Um, and, you know, I'm on Facebook, easy to find on Facebook. So Absolutely. anybody who wants to reach out to me there, feel free as well. That's so cool. And at, at uh, Make Pen Bad Director's Cut, you also have links there to Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, so they can check those out. And uh, how, to they, how do they continue to contribute? Uh, on MakePenBad.com, it, it gives you a, an area where you can contribute for, uh, for prizes and rewards. Uh, you know, from you know, from any small amount of money to any large amount of money, all, all the things you get for your money are exciting, fantastic, cool stuff. I mean, you get to, you know, a free magic lesson from Penn and Teller after seeing their show in Las Vegas is one of the is one of the rewards, which is, you know, turning out to be a which has been a very popular one. Penn will give you a private juggling lesson. There's a Penn Gillette hot tub party at his house with his wife and his friends. That's a wild one. <laughs> Or, you know, or the simple things like, uh, you know, T-shirts, uh, hats, DVDs of the movie, the script, you know, things like that, all kinds of fun stuff. That's really cool. That's very cool. Can you talk now to the funding process? There's been a lot of stuff about crowdfunding, and there's been uh, both pro and con about, I mean, all, any crowdfunding campaign is in and of itself uh, probably as much, if not more, work sometimes than making the movie is. Because uh, you really have to work the campaigns. Now, you know, I, I don't recall if who who kicked it off, but it was either Zach Braff or somebody who drew attention to you know celebrities doing uh, crowdfunding campaigns, which uh, some people were very pro about, and some people very con. You know, had very uh, d- uh, different feelings regarding that. What has the experience of crowdfunding been like for for you guys on on? on the internet in terms of very thing you i mean it's 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 in some ways it's not any less work than than going the sec route and raising money you know traditionally it's it's it can be lots of work anything that you've learned or um can discuss in terms about um uh, making and working or working and making campaigns work yeah, well, I will tell you this. Um, one thing that surprised me when we went into it was how much work it actually is to do it right. Um, mounting a crowdfunding campaign is no different than running any campaign, running for mayor. You know, I mean, it, it, it really is something you have to work all day, every day, throughout the entirety of the campaign. You can't just make a video, tweet it a couple times, and expect that the money's going to roll in. And some big stars have failed at their own crowdfunding campaigns because they just didn't work it. Right. So that's one thing that Penn, Penn Gillette did brilliantly, is Penn Gillette worked it all day, every day. He was, he, he, he was on it. We all had to be. And, so, and I'm talking about not only tweeting and Facebooking everything, but he did, he did podcasts. He did blogs, he did interviews, he did, I mean, every, television appearances. He, 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 we got celebrities to endorse us. You know, you'd think, though, I mean, that, oh, you get Ben Stiller to do a, a, an endorsement video for your crowdfunding campaign. Well, that's, that's your whole budget right there. You'll get it in two seconds. Not the case. 
each right. one got us a little bump, a little bump, but you, we still every day had to work it and work it and work it to be able to get to our goal and, and ultimately get beyond our goal. And um, what I would say to anybody going into a crowdfunding campaign is, is be prepared to make it your full-time job uh, if you want it to be successful. And by the way, it I is also have to say about, I, I do want to, uh, you, you asked what I thought about people who, who are critical of crowdfunding. I think crowdfunding is great. Uh, I think that, you know, in the, the fact that you can go directly to fans and ask them if they want to see this movie, and if they do, here's how they basically, what, what's happening is basically you're going to fans and you're saying, do you want to see this movie? If you do, here's your way to buy your tickets and any merch you might have otherwise wanted to buy, here's your way of buying it now. You know? and, and if you want to buy that stuff now, that enables us then to make the movie for you. Any movie that's made is then taken to an audience and is then ultimately, you know, every movie that's ever been made is financed by crowdfunding only after the fact because people buy the tickets after the movie has been made. People buy the toys and the merch and, you know, after the movie's been made. Well, what crowdfunding gives people the freedom to do is choose the movie they want to see get made. Yeah, I, I'm a, I, this sounds like a good idea for a movie. I'm, I'm a, a, fan, a fan of Penn Jillette. I liked the movie Look that Adam Rifkin made. I do want to see this movie. And so I want to see it so much, I'm willing to buy the DVD now on, on the, you know, on the bet that it's going to be good. Or I'm going to spend even more money because I want to be the executive producer of that movie. I, I'm so excited about that movie. I think it's a very exciting way to be able to go directly to fans and give them the option of seeing the movie they want get made. I think what you just said is so brilliant, and, and I'm not blowing smoke at you, Adam. I really do. You, you, the, you uttered a few words that I had never, ever actually had that thought crystallized in my mind, but all movies are crowdfunded in arrears. I mean that, you know. While they while they they may have been made, the the ticket goes back to you know making the thing successful. So right there, I mean, you, you know, my my brain went, wow, it's <laughs> it's so it's so true. I mean, we think of crowdfunding as new, but it is a new opportunity because now it's it's egalitarian. More people can do it, whether they're celebrity or non-celebrity. They have the opportunity to go out and engage people, as you said, and say. Do you want to see this made? Um, but it's interesting because, you know, people vote after the fact. You know, when the big movie comes out and it doesn't make its money and they've spent, you know, $100 million and they only make $10, um, maybe that should have been, you know what I mean? I mean, maybe had it been done, <laughs> yeah. done the other way around, it would have made more sense. People said, no, we're really not interested in this because they're saying, no, we're not interested in this after. I mean, I, you, 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 you've given me plenty of food for thought, but it's, it certainly is, uh, I, I think, an important, an important point when it comes to um, people who are opposed to crowdfunding, that all, all movies essentially are crowdfunded. It's at some level, they're at least all crowdfunded. And I, and I think that is, wow. I mean, I've got to think more on that, but that's awesome. Thank you. Thank um, you. <laughs> True. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Giuseppe makes a movie, and make sure that we, we we talk about that and tell us what that is. Absolutely. I uh, I made my first documentary 
It's called Giuseppe Makes a Movie. And it follows a um, very passionate independent filmmaker named Giuseppe Andrews um, who lives in a trailer park in Ventura and makes no-budget movies starring all his homeless friends and wow. the winos and, and oddballs that live in and around his trailer park. And he's made well over, probably well over 50 films at this point, but at the time we were wow. making the documentary, he was making his 30th film. Wow. Um, and it's a movie really about passion and about, you know, um, what motivates an artist. And it's about this sort of island of misfit toys that uh, he, he brings together and makes these people feel special and gives them something exciting to be a part of and, and basically treats them like movie stars. And it's, I know Giuseppe Andrews because he was an actor in a film I made called Detroit Rock City. He played one of the four kids, and he had expressed an interest to me in being a filmmaker, so I was very encouraging. And uh, little did I know that the films he would ultimately end up making would be the craziest, most insane movies I'd ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. And take into account, I seek out crazy films and have my whole life. So uh, these are the craziest films you'll ever see. He makes them for nothing, and, but he is just passionate about making, getting them made. And I had always been uh, a fan of his crazy movies, and he'd always um, shown them all to me. And his process and the people he works with are so colorful that I chose to document the process. And I followed him while he made uh, one of his uh, classics, which is a film called Garbanzo Gas. So anyway, <laughs> I shot the documentary a while ago, a number of years ago, actually, but little and little by little just with the help of uh, my producer, Mike Plant, and our editor, uh, we just little by little put, put it together as a side project while we all were working on other things. And it just all kind of gelled together finally this year. And suddenly it got accepted into a whole bunch of film festivals. It, it premiered at Hot Docs in Toronto, which is a great documentary film festival. It's playing um, Rooftop Film Festival in New York. It's having its LA premiere at the LA Film Festival in June, and it's getting great reviews, and it's a very exciting experience having made a documentary. You think you want to do another one? I'd love to. I just need to find a subject that I feel equally as excited about. Uh, yeah, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. I think, you know, it's interesting because documentaries, there are those people who – follow something for a year, five years, ten years, you know, I mean, it, the nature of it, or there's a, a way of going in and documenting kind of what's happening now. And, uh, but it, it, in, in some ways, it almost seems like more work than a feature film because you never know when you may have to shoot a documentary. Well, this one was different than that because it was a self-contained experience. He was shooting this film over the course of one weekend, and oh, I just went up there. Yeah, so I just went up there and I just documented the weekend, uh, everything that unfolded over the course of the weekend. And uh, so it was a, a pretty self-contained um, experience time-wise, but it uh -huh. took years to finally put together. Well, that's really cool, though. That's really cool. So I, I, just out of curiosity, when he's completed his film, what does he do with it? How does... Well, that's part of the, one of the things in the documentary. He has a, actually a website where all his films are available. It's called GiuseppeAndrews.net. 
and I recommend that people check out his his films, his music, his art, his poetry, his books. He's just a a very creative guy. Um, but uh, you know he there are he talks about in the documentary there are films he made that he would get angry at because it didn't turn out right, and then he would just destroy it and it wouldn't exist anymore. And <laughs> it was really unfortunately some of the good ones are gone. But he's, there's so many of them that are still there. It's it's definitely uh, there's a lot to lot to watch. Wow, that's that's very very cool. Um, so we want to keep in mind uh, which things. Let me let's let go back and recap the the different things that that people can pay attention to. Um, reality is going to be coming out. Reality show. Will be reality coming out. show. Yeah, we're we're negotiating a theatrical distribution deal on reality show right now. So look for that later this year. Um, Giuseppe makes the movie. The documentary is going to be making the festival rounds and then hopefully going to get seen uh, theatrically as well um, later this year. Uh, please check out makepenbad.com and be a part of Director's Cut. Uh, that would be great. And, uh, yeah, those are, the, those are the things. And then there's, then there's Peeps. And then there's what? Peeps, we yes. haven't talked so, about. No, we haven't. Let's please do. Um, just as a little footnote, um, a lot of people who know me know that um, my, uh, in addition to making independent films, I also have uh, been given the uh, opportunity to be a part of writing a lot of big Hollywood family films, like Mouse Hunt and Small Soldiers and Underdog and stuff. And, and uh, me and uh, a couple producers I work with obtained the rights to Peeps, to do the Peeps movie. Um, and it was just recently announced and got an enormous amount of attention. The, the announcement really went viral and was picked up by all, just about every major news outlet, including it was on the front page of the New York Times Sunday, New York Times this Sunday, this past Sunday, and uh, Rolling Stone and New York Times, I mean, and the LA Times, and I mean, just the list of, of outlets that picked it up on and on. And the concept is, you know, people are aware that Peeps candies are something that every Easter basket has in them, but what a lot of people may not know is that Peeps diorama contests are a worldwide phenomenon. If you go into Google Images and just type in Peeps diorama, you will see thousands and thousands of very elaborate dioramas created out of Peeps bunnies and Peeps chicks, and they're all wow. very clever and very funny. They recreate historical moments like the crossing Washington crossing the Delaware or um, the winner of this year's Washington Post Peeps Diorama Contest was the a recreation of the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech with Peeps right but people uh, recreate uh, uh. scenes from famous movies like Scarface or or The Wizard of Oz people recreate scenes from classic books people create you know uh, just pop culture moments in time like um, like the uh, uh, the uh, um, the Wall Street protesting, you know, all these things are being, you know, the, yeah. the Harold Ramis funeral was created in Peeps. And so the idea came out wow. of these dioramas. I, would see, I saw all these dioramas and I just thought, this is too funny. There's this cult of Peeps that people are obsessed with creating these dioramas. So I, I've got an idea for a movie um, where it's the night before the biggest diorama contest, the Washington Post diorama contest. And uh, one of the Peeps gets misplaced out of his diorama into the wrong diorama 
And so once all the humans are gone from the Union Hall, he has to go on this fantastical journey through all the different fantasy lands of all the different dioramas to get back to his own diorama before the judging begins in the morning. And each diorama is its own self-contained, you know, fully realized land, you know. Um, and uh, we pitched that idea to the Peeps people, and they, they went for it. They loved it. So we wow. obtained the rights, and now we're looking for the right studio to partner with on it. Well, that's amazing. And I did, while you were, well, when you said, you know, if you go and Google it, and I did, and you're, <laughs> you're absolutely right. The, uh, that is amazing. And how cool at the same time. That is really cool. So it, it, this would be uh, an animated feature? Yeah, it would be an animated film, but bookended with live action. Wow. That is impressive. I see, I mean, I, I would just, off the, you know, going back, there was Gulliver's Travels and Greece. I mean, all sorts of different kinds of, uh, it looked like, I don't know. I mean, there's just so many. Oh, what a yeah. enough idea. How cool. So that should be a fun one. It should be, yeah, no, absolutely. That, that, that is really cool. I saw your, I saw an announcement about it, but I didn't know exactly what it all entailed. And it is, it is. That's really, that's really clever. Well, what the what the Lego Movie has proved to everybody now is that it's all in the execution. You can make a great movie of anything if you're clever enough. It's easy to be cynical about. You know, oh, uh, uh, it's uh, just a shameless, you know, cross-promotional plug to make a movie of a Lego toy. It's a little piece of plastic. How can you make a good movie out of that? Guess what? It was great. You know, people said the same thing about Pirates of the Caribbean. Is Hollywood out of ideas that they now have to turn to amusement park rides to make movies out of? Guess what? Great movie spawned a fantastic franchise, right? So that's the plan with Peeps. I mean, we think that these dioramas prove that you can be as creative as you want with these, with these little characters that somehow have tapped into people's imaginations, and we want to do something really wild and fun and funny with it. Well, that's exciting, and it's, and it's good news because it demonstrates that what you said, the, you know, if it's all in the execution, that there are so many as of yet great untapped ideas of, of things that are in existence as opposed to original ideas or something like that, but of, of things that with the right approach and with the right uh, team and with the right execution, the idea that you could, you could pitch something to peeps and they went, cool, uh, should be um, a good news for filmmakers and writers out there. I hope so. And, and listen, we happen to live and work in a climate right now in Hollywood where Hollywood studios at the moment – like pre-existing brand names to to hang um, right. franchises on. I'm not saying that it's always the best idea. You know, I mean, there are you know, it, it, you know, they sell a lot of boxes of Cheerios. I can't necessarily figure out how that would be a good movie. Maybe somebody could, <laughs> but I mean, but but movies cost so much money now. I mean, you know, an, an average movie is $100 million plus, right? And that's not including the, you know, double or, or more to advertise that. So, right. so the studio marketing people naturally want some sort of, in some way, uh, 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 assurance that the audience is going to recognize this property and, and that, that name recognition, that brand recognition, help.
in some way, you know, uh, hopefully, uh, gear, you know, movie goers toward that project. So, but, you know, everybody knows Lego. So, you know, everybody's aware of it. And because it was good, everybody went to see it and loved it. So there, there should be no limits. You can be creative with anything. Uh, and if, if it's a pre-existing title that helps you get it attention and get it sold and get it out there and ultimately get the attention of the ticket goers, I have no problem with that. Just be really creative with the idea within. You know, just with, within those parameters, just make the best movie you can. That's so cool. When I was a younger person in Hollywood, a friend of mine came to me with an idea for a, for a Batman Robin thing. And we took it to some, you know, producers for TV and for movies, and they were all real cool. And then it was at DC Comics or Band, I don't remember which it is it now. Um, said no, nope, absolutely not. But we and uh, they they wouldn't let us even, you know, pursue it at the time. But uh, yeah. so it's amazing to see how things have changed throughout the years um, with uh, these franchises and. Uh, and the, I, I mean, I just find what you say very hopeful. And like you said, it may be tough to come up with the concept for Cheerios, but uh, who knows? Maybe some enterprising person out there uh, just had that idea, you know. <laughs> wow, I got one. Absolutely. And listen, I, 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 I root for every movie to be good, you know, because I love movies. And good movies help other good movies get made. So, you know, if somebody did come up with a brilliant idea for a Cheerios movie, I'd be the first one to say, that's great. I mean, I remember when Toy Story was coming uh-huh. out. There were people that were railing on the whole concept, that it's just Disney trying to capitalize on selling more toys, and it's just an exploitive exercise and shameless, you know, commercialism, cross-promotionalism, whatever. And guess what? It was a great movie. And so were all the other Toy Story movies, great movies. So it just proves it's all in the execution. No, that's excellent. You know, Adam, we've got about four or five minutes left. And I do want to give you the final word to talk about anything that you would like to talk about or advice to filmmakers or anything. I mean, you've given so much already today, and, and, I, and I have appreciated everything. But I do want to let you um, discuss whatever you want to discuss. And remember that Adam is on Facebook at Adam Rifkin and on Twitter at Adam Rifkin. And it's A-D-A-M-R-I-F-K-I-N. Correct. Um, the, the thing that I would just like to say to anybody out there who is pursuing filmmaking, or any art form really, but filmmaking I, I can speak to specifically because that's what I, I know and that's what I do. Um, these days, luckily for you out there pursuing it, um, it's easier now to get movies made than it ever has been before because the technology has finally caught up to people's ambition. When I first was starting out, if you wanted to make a movie, you had to shoot it on film. And film is expensive, and getting film developed is expensive, and, and renting the equipment to edit your film on was expensive. So at a minimum, you had to shell out still a lot of money. But now, you could, you could literally shoot a movie with the phone that's in your pocket right now. You could cut it together on an editing app or on, on your laptop. And if it's good, which there's no reason it doesn't have to be good, just because the, the technology is so readily available and so inexpensive doesn't mean the movie doesn't have to be good. So if it's good, it can change your life. You can, you can promote it to a worldwide audience on social media. You can release it to a worldwide audience on YouTube. Or you could 
enter it in any number of festivals, and it could get accepted, and it could change your life forever. I say don't wait for permission to get your movies made. I say just start making movies now, whether they're shorts that you put on YouTube or whether you're going to make your epic feature that you're going to shoot on your cell phone or whether you managed, you, know, you sold your car. And, and can, you, know, you can shoot a movie that looks spectacularly good for n- very little money now with, with some of the cameras that are available. I mean, it doesn't have to be your cell phone. I mean, you can get cameras now, prosumer cameras now, that can shoot beautiful footage. You, it, it, it can look... I, I, I have a buddy who made a movie uh, last year for $500, and it looks wow. better, than, better than movies that, have, that cost $10 million because he's talented. Talent is, your, is, your, is the cheapest production value you have. If you have talent, you can make you can make something good out of anything. And I just really encourage you to just do it. Now, at the same time, I also say this. If you're pursuing a career in film or any art form, you have to be resilient and not take rejection personally. That is something that uh, I think is very important because it's, you know, there's a lot of competition out there and you're going to get rejected you know, uh, and you just have to not care. You have to literally let it be water off a duck's back. And think of it like this. If you were a boxer and you took it personally every time somebody punched you in the face, you'd be a terrible boxer. So your job when you're pursuing your art form is to get punched in the face. And you're just going to get punched in the face a lot. Don't take it personally because every once in a while you're going to get a good right hook in and you're going to get a chance to do something cool. So... Make your movie, don't wait for permission, and don't take rejection personally. Those are my two big pieces of advice. Well, those are excellent. I really, I really do appreciate that, and I appreciate all of the ideas and, and information that you've shared with us today and uh, in the past. I, I really do. And, uh, and I hope you come back again sometime soon. And uh, I, I, really, I really appreciate it. I mean, because uh, a lot of talk... About everything uh, is 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 people trying to make a difference in their lives and in, and, and in their art and in their craft and in their business. And you've touched on so many really important points uh, for people to to embrace, uh, both for the actor, uh, for the director, because the flip side to uh, the actor coming in to be cast is, is those people out there who are directing and, and understanding the importance of casting the right person in the role. And, and getting things done in crowdfunding. So you, you've covered a lot of essential topics today that uh, are in the hearts and minds of, of lots of people, and, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate you, and I, and I thank you for being here today. I'm going to give you a of call course. back in just a moment or two, if you've got to say, when, when, when we're off the air. I forgot to mention that earlier. And then, uh, and then I'm going to let, and I'll let you go, but I will let you go now. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you, man. Anytime, and uh, good luck to everybody out there. All right, awesome. Mr. Adam Rifkin, I want to thank him, a very fascinating guest, and my guest today on Rex Sykes Movie. Please share this discussion with your friends near and far, and leave comments at the player, whether you listen live or archived. But uh, spread the word, 
and uh, and help others benefit from the information that Adam shared today. And from the information, they benefit, think of it this way, they benefit from you sharing the information with them about how they can benefit. And that is always a golden thing when you can help someone else out in that fashion. So uh, Rex Ike's Movie Beat, uh, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com is the official URL where all of these interviews are housed, both live and archived. Blog Talk Radio, of course, uh, iTunes as the Rex Ike's Movie Beat uh, podcast absolutely free rate and review and uh, you can join um, Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends on Facebook to be updated about uh, my guests and other articles and conversations and discussions and cast and crew news uh, I have a number of different pages on uh, on Facebook and then on Twitter follow me at Rex Sykes Movie BT that last word is abbreviated as Rex Sykes Movie BT and, uh, and we'll be glad you did be sure to follow Adam Rifkin on Twitter and uh, and to find him on Facebook. So everybody, my next guest is Mr. David Winning. He'll be coming up on the 22nd. If there are any changes in schedule, I will let you know through Twitter and through Facebook, as well as uh, perhaps on the on my own website, uh, Rex X Movie Beat. Um, but we, I've got many exciting guests coming up in the near future, so do stay tuned and do keep sharing the website and these discussions with all your friends and contacts. All right, everybody, have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your projects, and until we meet the next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>